Chapter 15, Part 3 of A History of Greece to the Death of Alexander the Great, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Paul Sutton. A History of Greece to the Death of Alexander the Great, Volume 2 by John Bagnell Burry. Chapter 15, Part 3. For the catastrophe of Acragas, the chief blame was laid upon the Syracusan generals, who deserted her in the critical hour. The Acragantines were not slow to make them responsible for their own unheroic flight. At Syracuse itself, there was a feeling that these generals were hardly the men to meet the great jeopardy in which Sicily now stood, and there was one man who saw in the jeopardy the opportunity of his own ambition. It was Dionysus, a man of obscure birth, who had been a clerk in a public office. He had been a partisan of Hermocrates, by whose side he had stood in the last fatal fray, and had been wounded and left for dead. Recently he had marked himself out by his energy and bravery before the walls of Acragas. He saw the incompetence of the democratic government of his city. He saw that in the present peril it might be overthrown, and he determined to overthrow it. An assembly was held to consider the situation. Dionysus arose, and in a violent harangue accused the generals of treachery. His language was intended to stir up the hearers to fury. He called upon the people to rise up themselves and destroy the traitors without trial. His violence transgressed the constitutional rules of the assembly, but the presidents had no power to bridle him. They imposed a fine, the only resource they had. But a wealthy friend, Philistus the historian, came forward and paid the fine, bidding the speaker to go on. For as often as a fine was imposed, he would pay it. Dionysus carried his point. The generals were deposed, and a new board was appointed, of which Dionysus was one. This was only the first step on the road which was to lead to the Tyrannus. His next success was to procure the recall of the partisans of Hermocrates, who had been condemned to exile. These old comrades might be useful to him in his designs. At the same time, he sought to discredit his colleagues. He kept entirely apart from them and spread reports that they were disloyal to Syracuse. Presently, he openly accused them, and the people elected him sole general with the sovereign powers to meet the instant danger. This office, held before, as we have reason to think, by Gelan and Hero, did not set him above the laws, nor was the office illegal, though extraordinary. It may be compared to the Roman dictatorship. But it was the second step to the tyranny. The next step, as history taught him, the story of Pisistratus, for instance, was to procure a bodyguard. The assembly at Syracuse, which had perhaps begun to repent already of having placed so much power in the hands of one man, would certainly not have granted such an instrument of tyranny. But Dionysus was ingenious. He saw that the thing might be done elsewhere. He ordered the Syracusan army to march to Leontini, which it will be remembered was now a Syracusan dependency. He encamped near the town, and during the night a rumor was spread abroad that the general's life had been attempted, and he had been compelled to seek refuge in the Acropolis. An assembly was held next day, nominally an assembly of Syracusan citizens, which, when Dionysus laid bare the designs of his enemies, voted him a bodyguard of 600. This he soon increased to 1,000, and he had won over the mercenaries to his cause. These were the three steps in the despot's progress, which rendered Dionysus lord and master of Syracuse. His intrigues had won him first a generalship, then sole generalship, with unlimited military powers, and finally a bodyguard. Syracuse, unwilling and embarrassed, submitted with evident chagrin, but was dominated by the double dread of the mercenaries and the Carthaginians. The democracy, of course, was not formally overthrown, 
Dionysus held no office that upset the Constitution. Things went on, as at Athens, under Pisistratus. The assembly met and passed decrees and elected magistrates. The justification of the power of Dionysus lay in the need of an able champion to oppose Carthage, and his partisans represented him as a second Galon. But though Dionysus was in later years to prove himself among the chief champions of Hellenic Sicily against the Punic powers, his conduct at this crisis did not fulfill the hopes of those who thought to compare him with the hero of Himera. The Carthaginians were already encamped at Gela. Their first act was to remove a colossal brazen statue of Apollo which stood, looking over the sea, on the hill to the west of the city. The Galoans defended their walls with courage and zeal, and when Dionysus arrived with an army of Italiots and Siciliots and a fleet of fifty ironclad ships to cooperate, it seemed as if Gela would escape the doom of Acragas. An excellent plan was arranged for a combined attack on the Carthaginian camp, which lay on the west side of the town. The plan failed because the concert was not accurately carried out. The Siciliots, who were to assault the eastern side of the camp, arrived late on the spot and found the enemy, who had already repelled the attack of the Italiots and the fleet on the southern and western sides, free to meet them in full force. This hitch in the execution of the plan was hardly a mere blunder. Dionysus, with his mercenaries, had undertaken to issue from the western gate of Gela and drive away the besiegers, while the rest of his army were attacking the camp. It seems, however, that Dionysus took no part in the fighting, and alleged that he was retarded by difficulties in crossing the town from the eastern to western gate. We shall probably do no injustice to Dionysus if we conclude that it was through this disposition that the Siciliots failed to act in concert with the Italiots. The action which he took after the defeat shows that he was half-hearted in the work. He decided, in a private council, as Diocles had decided at Himera, that the defense must be abandoned and the whole people of Gela removed. At the first watch of the night, he sent the multitude forth from the city and followed himself at midnight, his way to Syracuse, led by Camarina, and here too Dionysus ruled that the whole people must forsake their home. The road to Syracuse was full of the crowds of helpless fugitives from the two cities. It was presently thought that these strange proceedings of Dionysus were carried out in collusion with the barbarians, that he had deliberately betrayed to them Gela, which might have been defended. Camarina, which had not yet been attacked, the Italian allies showed, not their disgust only, but their apprehension, that the war was practically over, by marching immediately home. The horsemen of Syracuse seized the occasion for a desperate attempt to subvert the new tyrant. They rode rapidly to the city, plundered the house of Dionysus, and maltreated his wife, although she was the daughter of Hermocrates. When Dionysus heard the news, he hastened to Syracuse with a small force. He reached the gate of Acredina by night, and being refused admittance, burned it down with a fire of reeds, supplied by the neighboring marsh. In the marketplace, he easily overmastered a handful of opponents. The remnant fled to Etna, which now became, in a better cause, what Eleusis was to Athens after an overthrow of the Thirty. In what concerns the charge that the Syracusan tyrant had a secret understanding with Carthage, there is a strong case against him. The events are scarcely intelligible, on any other view, but it was no more than a temporary disloyalty to the cause of Hellas and Europe, for which he was hereafter to do great feats. His first motive was the selfish motive of a tyrant. He wanted Tom to lay stable foundations for his still precarious power at Syracuse, and he judged that it would be a strong support to obtain a recognition of his power from the Carthaginian Republic. The punicism of the lord of Syracuse was not more unscrupulous than the metism of the ephors of Sparta, to which it is the western parallel. 
The treaty, which was now agreed upon between Himilco and Dionysus, was drawn up on the basis of uti possidetis. Each party retained what it actually held at the time. Syracuse acknowledged Carthage as a mistress of all Greek states on the northern and southern coasts, and also of the Secan communities. Acragas, what was left of Salinas, Gela, and Camarina, were all to be henceforward under Punic sway, and on the north coast, Carthage had advanced her frontier to include the territory of Himera, in which she had planted her first colony. But all these cities were not to hold the same relation to their mistress. Acragas and Salinas, like Thermae, were subjects in the full sense of the word, but Gela and Camarina were to be only tributary and unwalled cities. The Elemian towns are not mentioned, but we have seen how Segesta became a subject of Carthage by her own act, and we can hardly doubt that Eryx was forced into the same condition. The terms of the treaty provided for the independence of the Sicil communities and the city of Messana, but it provided also for the independence of Leonatini, and this was a point in which it departed from the basis Ute Peseditus, Leontoni being a dependency of Syracuse. It was clearly a provision extorted from Dionysus and intended by Himilco to be a source of embarrassment to Syracuse. On the other hand, as a counter-concession, nothing was said about the dependence of Naxos or Catane, so that Syracuse might have a free hand to deal with her old enemies without fear of violating the treaty. Such was the new arrangement of the map of Sicily at the end of the second Carthaginian invasion. An accidental consequence of that invasion had been to establish Dionysus as a tyrant of Syracuse. This consequence enabled Himilco to bring his work to a conclusion more easily and quickly than he had hoped. He could not foresee that the undoing of his work would be the ultimate result. The Carthaginians guaranteed to maintain the rule of Dionysus, who was soon to prove one of their most powerful foes. For Dionysus, this guarantee, the Syracusans shall be subject to Dionysus, was the most important clause in the treaty. Some suppose it was a secret clause. It was for the sake of this recognition and the implied promise of support that he stooped to betray Sicilian Hellas. We shall see how he redeemed this unscrupulous act of expediency by creating the most powerful Hellenic state in the Europe of his day. End of chapter 15, part 3. Recording by Paul Sutton. A History of Greece to the Death of Alexander the Great, Volume 2. By John Bagnell Burry, Chapter 15, Part 4. First Years of Dionysus For half a century after the fall of Athens, it seemed likely that the destinies of Europe would be decided by a Greek city in the western Mediterranean. Under her new lord, Dionysus, Syracuse had become a great power, a greater power than any that had yet arisen in Europe. In strength and dominion, and influence and promise, she outstripped all the cities of the mother country, and in a general survey of the Mediterranean coast, she stands out clearly as the leading European power. The Greek states, to which the Persian king sent down his peace, were now flanked on either side by two great powers, and a political prophet might have been tempted to foretell that the communities of old Greece were doomed to perish between the monarchies of Susa and Syracuse, which threatened their freedom on the east and on the west. Those who were tempted to spy into the future might have conjectured that the ultimate conflict with Persia was reserved for a Sicilian conqueror, who should one day extend his dominion over eastern Greece and the Aegean, and as autocrat of Europe, oppose the autocrat of Asia. Though this war was not to be, though the expansion of Sicily was arrested, and the power which was to subdue Asia arose on the borders of old Greece, yet we shall see that in many ways the monarchy of Dionysus foreshadowed the monarchy of Philip and Alexander. 
It is in Sicily, not in Old Greece, that we see the first signs of a new epoch, in which large states are to take the place of small, and monarchy is to supersede free institutions. The tyranny of Dionysus lasted for 38 years, till the end of his life. All that time it was maintained by force. All that time it was recognized as a violation of the Constitution and an outrage on the freedom of the people. The forms of the Constitution were still maintained. The folk still met and voted in the assembly, and Dionysus was either annually erected or permanently appointed general with absolute powers. But all this was pure form. His position was a fact, which had no constitutional name, and which made the Constitution of none effect. And it was by the compulsion, and not of their free will, that the mass of citizens continued to obey him. His bodyguard of foreign mercenaries was the support of his power. More than one attempt was made to throw off the yoke, but his craft and energy defeated the most determined efforts of his adversaries. Yet the unusual ability of Dionysus would not have availed more than the spearmen who were within call, to extend his unlawful reign to a length which a tyrant's reign seldom reached, if he had not discovered and laid to heart what may be called a secret of tyranny. While he did cruel and oppressive deeds for political purposes, he never committed outrages to gratify personal desires of his own. He scrupulously avoided all those acts of private insolence, which have brought the reigns of Greek tyrants into such ill repute. Many a despot had fallen, by the hand of fathers or lovers whom the dishonor of their nearest and dearest had spurred to the pursuit of vengeance at the risk of their own lives. Dionysus eschewed this mistake. His crimes and his enemies were political. When his son seduced a married woman, the discreet tyrant rebuked him. It is well for you to chide me, said the young man, but you had not a tyrant for your father. And if you go on doing this sort of thing, retorted Dionysus, you will not have a tyrant for your son. This notable moderation of Dionysus in private life was perhaps the chief cause of the duration of his tyranny. Beyond the common motive of patriotism, Men had no burning personal wrongs to spur them to encounter the danger of driving a dagger to the despot's heart. But besides this discretion, which made his government tolerable, his successes abroad counted for something, and it was more than once born in a Syracuse that his rule was necessary to protect her against her enemies. And we shall see that Dionysus was fully conscious that it conduced his own safety that there should be enemies against whom she needed a protector. The first concern of the new tyrant was to establish himself in a stronghold. As we have seen, the Acropolis of Syracuse was not, as in other cities, the hill, but the island. And it was the island which Dionysus made his fortress. He built a turreted wall on the north side of the isthmus, so as to bar the island off from the mainland. And he built two castles, one close to, if not on, the isthmus, the other at the southern point of the island. Whoever entered the island from Agrodina had to pass under five successive gates and no one was allowed to dwell within the island fortress except those whom Dionysus regarded as his own friends and supporters. The scheme of fortifications took in the lesser harbor, which, with its new docks, became under Dionysus the chief arsenal of the Syracuse and naval power. The mouth of this port was entirely closed by a mole, the galleys passing in and out through a gate which was only wide enough to allow one to pass at a time. Besides these defenses of stone, Dionysus strengthened his position by dealing rich rewards to confirm in their allegiance his friends and hirelings, and by forming a class of new citizens out of enfranchised slaves. The forfeited estates of his enemies supplied him with the means of carrying out both these acts of policy. It was not long before he had an unwelcome occasion of putting to the test both the walls of his fortress and the hearts of his followers. The most favorable opportunity for any attempt to overthrow the tyrant was when the Syracusan army was in the field. When the citizens had arms in their hands and were formed in military ranks, 
the word of a patriot could more easily kindle them to action than when they were engaged in their peaceable occupations at home. Dionysus led out the army against Herbesus, one of the cities of the Sicils. Mutinous talk passed from mouth to mouth, and the disaffected citizens slew one of the tyrant's officers who rebuked them. Then the mutiny broke out loud and free. Dionysus hastened to Syracuse and shut himself up in his fastness. The revolted citizens followed and laid siege to their own city. They sent messages to Messana and Regium, asking these cities to help them to win back their freedom. And a succor of eighty triremes came in answer to their help. By sea and land they pressed Dionysus, so hard in his island fortress that his case seemed desperate, and some of his mercenary troops went over to the enemy. Dionysus called a council of his most trusted friends. Some bade him flee on a swift horse. Others counseled him to stay till he was driven out. Haloris used a phrase which became famous. Sovereign power is a fair winding sheet. Dionysus followed the counsel of these who bade him stay, but he resorted to a piece of craft which was more successful than he could have well hoped. He entered into negotiations with his besiegers and asked for permission to quit Syracuse with his own goods. They willingly agreed to the proposal and allowed him five triremes, and they were so convinced of his good faith that they dismissed a company of cavalry which had come to their aid from Etna. But meanwhile, Dionysus had sent a secret message to the Campanian mercenaries of Carthage, who had been left by Himilco in some part of Sicily. Twelve hundred in number, they were permitted to come to the help of the tyrant, whose lordship had been recognized and guaranteed by Carthage in the recent treaty. The besiegers, thinking that the struggle was over, had half broken up their leaguer, and were in complete disorder. The Campanians occupied the hills of Apopoli without resistance. Dionysus sallied forth, and decisively, though without much shedding of blood, defeating the rebels in their neighborhood of the theater, a quarter of the city which we now find, for the first time, called Neapolis. Dionysus used his victory mildly. Many of the rebels fled to Etna and refused to return to Syracuse, but those who returned were received kindly and not punished. As for the Campanians, to whom Dionysus owed his rescue, they did not return to the service of Carthage, but made a new home in the west of Sicily, in the Sycan town of Entella. They induced the inhabitants to admit them as new citizens, and one night they arose and slew all the men and married the women. Thus was formed the first Italian settlement on Sicilian soil. When the revolt broke out, we saw Dionysus aiming an attack at a Sicil city. The first step in the expansion of Syracuse in power, which was the object of the tyrant's ambition, was the reduction of the Greek cities of the eastern coast and the neighboring Sicil towns. The Sicil towns were putting on more and more of a Hellenic character, and the reign of Dionysus marks a stage of progress in their Hellenization. We get a glimpse of political parties striving in Sicil, just as in Greek cities, and we find Henna ruled by a tyrant of Greek name. To attack the Sicils was indeed a breach of the treaty with Carthage, but for the present Dionysus gained no success which obliged Carthage to intervene. He entered Henna indeed, but only to overthrow the local tyrant and leave the inhabitants to enjoy their freedom. He attacked Urbita, but his attack was fruitless. With the Greek cities which stood in his way, he was more successful. First of all, he captured Etna, the refuge of Syracuse and exiles and malcontents, and these dangerous enemies dispersed, we know not whither. Then he turned against the two Ionian cities, Catane and Naxos. In fear of such an attack, Catane had taken the precaution of allying herself with Syracuse's former vassal, Leontini. The sole record we have of this alliance is a beautiful little silver coin with a laureled head of Apollo and the names of the two cities, one of an issue which was struck in the token of the treaty. But the support of Leontini did not avail. Both Catane and Naxos were won by gold, not by sword. Traders opened the gates to the Dorian tyrant. 
In his treatment of these cities, Dionysus showed himself in his worst light. All the inhabitants of Naxos and Catane alike were sold as slaves in the Syracusan slave market. Catane was given over to Campanian mercenaries as a dwelling place, and thus became the second Italian town in Sicily. But the city of Naxos, the most ancient of all the Siciliot cities, was not even given to a stranger to dwell in. The walls and the houses were destroyed. The territory was bestowed upon the Sicils, the descendants of the original possessors. And a small settlement near the old site barely maintained the memory of the name. Dionysus was one of the ablest champions of Greek Sicily against the Phoenician. Yet here he appears in the character of a destroyer, dealing to Greek civilization blows such as we should expect only from the Phoenician foe. It is certain indeed that the severity of the doom which he meted out to these cities was meant to serve a purpose, for wanton severity was never practiced by Dionysus. We may suspect what that purpose was. The conquest of Naxos and Catane was a far less consequence to the lord of Syracuse than the recovery of Leontini. To win back this lost Syracusan possession was the first object of all in the eyes of a Syracusan ruler. Dionysus had already called upon the Leontines to surrender, but in vain, and perhaps he thought that the siege of the place would be long and tedious. When he pronounced the doom of Naxus and Catane, he was in truth besieging Leontini with his most effectual engines, and when he approached with his army and summoned the Leontines to migrate to Syracuse and become his subjects under the name of Syracusan citizens, they did not hesitate to prefer that unwelcome change to the risk of faring still worse than the folks of Catane and Naxus. If we glance over Sicily at this moment, it comes upon us as a shock to discover that all of the cities of Greek Sicily which enjoyed sovereign powers at the time of the Athenian invasion, there remained now not a single independent community outside Syracuse herself, with the exception of Messana, who still kept watch upon her strait. The Carthaginians and Dionysus between them had swept all away. The recovery of the Leontine territory was a success which probably gratified the Syracusans as well as their master. It was indeed a direct defiance of Carthage, for the treaty had guaranteed the independence of Leontini. But Dionysus knew that a struggle with Carthage must come, and was not unwilling that it should come soon. He determined to equip Syracuse against all enemies who should come against her, and we next find him engaged in fortifying the city of an enormous scale. The fortification of the island had been intended mainly for his own safety against domestic enemies, but the works which he now undertook were for the city and not for the tyrant. The Athenian siege of Syracuse taught him lessons, which he had taken to heart. It taught him that the commanding heights of Epipoli must not be left for an enemy to seize, and therefore that it must become part of the Syracusan city, enclosed within the circuit of the Syracusan walls. It taught, too, the decisive importance of the western corner of Euralos, and the necessity of constructing a strong fortress at that point, which has been called the Key of Epipoli and of all Syracuse. These walls were built in an incredibly short space of time by 60,000 freemen, under the supervision of Dionysus himself. He seems to have inspired the citizens with the ambition of making their city the most strongly fortified place in the whole Greek world. The northern wall from Tycha to Euralos, a distance more than three miles, was completed in 20 days. The striking ruins of the massive castle of Euralos, with its curious underground chambers, are a memorial indeed of a tyrant's rule. But they are more than that. They are a monument of Greek Syracuse at the period of her greatest might, when she became, for a moment, the greatest power in Europe. It was no small thing to have carried out this enormous system of fortifications, which made Syracuse the vastest of all Greek cities. But Dionysus showed his surpassing energy and resource in preparing for an offensive as well as for defensive warfare. In military innovations, he is the forerunner of the great Macedonians, and the originator of the methods which they employed. 
He first thought out and taught how the heterogeneous parts of a military armament, the army and the navy, the cavalry and the infantry, the heavy and the light troops, might be closely and systematically coordinated so as to act as if they were a single organic body. He first introduced, his engineers first invented, the catapult, which, if it did not revolutionize warfare in general, like the discovery of gunpowder, certainly revolutionized siege warfare and introduced a new element into military operations. An engine which hurled a stone of two or three hundred weight for a distance of two or three hundred yards was extremely formidable in close quarters. In naval warfare, he was also an innovator. He constructed ships of huger size than had ever been built before, with five banks of oars. He largely increased the fleet, which, counting vessels of both the larger and the smaller kind, seems to have numbered about 300 galleys. End of chapter 15, part 4. Recording by Paul Sutton.